Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Traverse Theatre Edinburgh. We now join the theatre's associate director and your host, Hamish Peary. Welcome to this month's edition of the Travcast. The Travcast is a monthly writer's conversation where I get the opportunity to pick the brain of a writer. And this month, I have a writer who is award-winning writer for theatre and radio. His first play, A Wholly Healthy Glasgow, was on at the Royal Exchange Manchester and then transferred to the Royal Court in London. His second play, American Bagpipes, was at the Royal Exchange and then also the Royal Court and it won the John Whiting Award in 1998. His many, many works have been produced throughout the UK and internationally. His plays The King of Scotland and Wiping My Mother's Arse were produced here at The Traverse and we are thrilled to be working with Aura Moore to bring his new play The Queen of Lucky People here. Ian Heggie, welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. How are you? Uh, okay, <laughs> thank you. Yes, I've, uh, this has been a two weeks of moving office and uh, cutting three plays. Oh, wow. So uh, it's been an interesting time. Do you enjoy cutting plays? Yes. What is it you like about it? Uh, well, I enjoy it if there's enough distance between the draft and the cutting. Uh, because you... S- it's a time when you're seeing, oh, that's basically the same joke twice, but in different words. Uh, you're seeing, so you see, you see the play more from above at that stage, and and because you've sat, you've had plays on where you, the audience were sitting, marking time, getting ahead of the game, working out what was going to happen. Uh, you kind of gradually learn what you don't need. And that actually swiftness, as long as it's not too swift, is exciting in itself. <laughs> yeah, of course. You know. um, how do you balance against overcutting? When do you know if you've overcut? The director usually slaps you. and then, Or there's a reading or something and you suddenly miss something and you think, oh, actually, there was a reason why that was there. Uh, cutting does make you overzealous. Sometimes you cut overzealously. So usually the cut draft you have to leave for a few days. Right. And you suddenly go read it again after a few days after you cut it and then you go, ah, that bit's, you know, there'll be two or three bits that are not quite right. So you have to go back and fix that. And when you talked about the beginning of this conversation, you said uh, it has to be a certain amount of time after you've written the draft. And what's your roughly, what's your safety, what's it going the draw for before you come back for the cut? I don't, I don't, have rules about that uh, but long enough to be a, a little bit surprised at what is in front of you okay you know it's a wee bit kind of oh I don't remember doing that you know uh, so I, I think uh, I talk endlessly about this but I think the brain the human brain is divided up into all sorts of cabinets and departments and I think different drafts you use different parts of the brain right uh, and but I couldn't explain that exactly but what I think is that if all part all those parts of the brain don't end up in the final result then there's probably something missing from the play <laughs> brilliant do you have a certain amount of drafts does each play have a certain 
Has each player had different memory levels of draft, or do you normally are you generally work for right, four drafts? And I think I've got all these parts of the brain. As, since computers, it's all different. Right, of it course. used to be more like that. Since computers, uh, you know, you can make three changes and call it a new draft just for your own reference, because it's always handy to have things to go back and look at and ask, actually, I do need that after all. Oh, yes, there is a, ro- a use for that, maybe somewhere else in the play. So you can retrieve things quickly. But since computers, your temptation is to just call it a new draft all the time, just for filing purposes. What I've learned recently to do is have kind of master drafts. So I'll have one A, B, C, D, E, two A, B, C, whatever. Right. And what that does is it allows me to have all my changes. But where there's a big change change the number as well I sound Ooh. more like I think I sound more like a clerk or a librarian than a than a writer really not at all everyone's got to have structure and it's for me it's always a fascinating thing because there's writing can be such an unstructured existence because it's just you in a room yeah well yes that's true and you have to uh, put your own structure on don't you yeah well I and I definitely do I mean I think my best work uh, usually involves ludicrous numbers of notes between drafts. Right. All numbered. Right, so you get all these notes out. They're all bits of paper everywhere. They assemble them all together onto the computer and number them, and then you go through them all one at a time, and you go, that's a character note, that's an act three note, that goes there, that needs to run through the whole play. Uh, So I go through very carefully and ask, uh, what are all these notes for? And then I classify them again and say... That's for this draft, that stuff's for the next draft. And then you try to use your notes for this draft when you do that draft. But you'll then discover as you write, oh, I can't do that yet. Or you start, or you do some of the stuff from things you thought would go in the next draft. But the notes are really, really important to me because they crystallise what you think might be wrong with it. Right. And it's the crystallisation that leads to create new creative ideas. I got that whole notion from Bacon, Francis Bacon, the painter, who says that the difference between an amateur and a professional is a professional knows how to criticise their own work. That's possibly self-aggrandising, but... Um, take it, take it, take it. <laughs> um, I think, uh, but I think that's true. If you do, I think it's important to know lots about how plays work, for me, because then you have critical concepts. And unless you can crystallise what's wrong really precisely, I don't think the gold nugget creative ideas come. They come sometime after you've crystallised what's wrong. Um, and if you're only in it, the problem with being a inverted commas instinctive writer, all writers are instinctive. But the problem with only being that, I think, is that you do not feed your creativity. C- criticism, good guilt edge criticism, feeds creation. This is a, it works something like this: stuff just pops into your brain three days, five days, seven days later. You think, where's that come from? Oh, that's about the play. And it's come somewhere in the kind of big darkness in your brain. It's come somewhere from your very systematic criticism of your own work. Right. I think. <laughs> <laughs> and then those notes, do you make those notes from the, from the reading of the, first, of the draft? 
And he says you make all these hundreds. Of necessarily notes. be a reading, you know. It might just, you just reading it yourself. I might just get to the end and go right, and over the next two or three weeks, I don't even necessarily look back. It seems to be, uh, and it's a kind of pedantry that's for me quite satisfying because it makes me feel like I've been thorough. <laughs> that's what people like lists for, isn't it? You've got the list. I know that's what that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've done the work. So just take. But there's a lift off between the note and the creativity. If you don't get the lift off, then it's dead pedantry. Rather so it's about using it as a platform almost. Yeah, you're using it to hide. You're not really... Ma- you, you know, when you actually write on the basis of the note, there should be a surprise. That's when you know it's creative, you know. I love that idea of a surprise. <laughs> reading your own play and being surprised by it. But just to take you back, that I'd, to take us back into the process. So an idea pops into your head for a play. You haven't thought of a play. You don't know what you're going to write next and it pops in. What's the journey? How does it, where do you get your ideas from? Is it visual things? Is it ideas? And what's that journey from, oh, I've got the beginning of a germ of an idea to starting writing the play? All right. Where do I get the idea? And how, what's the... The journey through to that, yeah. Uh, Ideas, uh, the biggest play ideas when I was younger tended to come from a world... So it might be a world I'd experienced, you know, a health club, a home, family, home, or uh, and with Queen of Lucky People, it was the internet. It's, a, it's now become a world, you know, people interacting on it, so it's a world. And uh, so then, if I start from a world, I then the main thing that I will ask first, I very, very rarely start with ideas for characters. I don't really know what that means. Um, the main thing I would start with then is asking what's the problem? What's the, ca- what's the main problem that drives the action of the play? So wh- I don't know what the character's going to be like yet, but I'm asking what they're going to have to do and what's going to take an hour or two hours to achieve some kind of you know, success or failure at what they're going to do. And then when I start to write, uh, what the audience or what the directors and the actors call the characters appear, but I—that's the one thing I don't really advance plan very rarely. Uh, so I think for the bigger plays, the world is the most important thing. That is giving way slightly now to something that I didn't start with when I was younger, but a dilemma. I start instead of start with the world, I start. I can start with the problem, and the world forms around it. Um, and so that's the kind of probably most important source of uh, making a play happen and uh, and that kind of fits with what you know the classical thinkers about drama think about comedy that it's a kind of uh, um, an attack on an institution more than a tragedy if you like uh, or an epic it's, uh, it's a kind of it takes a given world and has huge fun taking it apart. Uh, and so, but also um, for shorter pieces, I might get an idea from an image. That one of the sex comedies, the image was a couple decorating, and then the decorating became about taunting each other or teasing each other by painting obscene pictures on the living room wall. And uh, the piece, little piece I'm writing for NTS's Dear Scotland, 
just another short monologue uh, that's come from doing some research about the character, and uh, which is King James, and uh, he was the author of the Union Jack because the Union was his project, and uh, what I was really fascinated fascinated by was the early drafts of the Union Jack. So I thought it would be a great thing for King James to show the early drafts of the Union, oh, great. Union Jack to the audience, and because you can almost see through the series of pictures you can see some sort of process of, oh I better not do it like that that'll annoy the English oh I better be careful about that one that'll upset the Scots you know etc and uh, so that's you know that's where that came from um, and then so for a man who's with no but I've also planning. there's adaptations I've done right go on uh, what I think attracts me to adap- certain adaptations is the story so I think uh, King of Scotland's a semi-adaptation from Diary of a Nobody, but the two ones that where it were the story were The Dawn, which is based on Moliere's Don Juan, and uh, the um, that my I've just written a one-man uh, adaptation of Hamlet called Tragic, and that's because I did that because I think Hamlet's a fantastic story, a great story, but very difficult to stage, and the language does everyone's head in, I think, in production. It's almost impossible to really enjoy it, I think, while it's happening. I remember really liking it at school when we read it, but I've never, ever got any pleasure from watching it in the theatre. So, it's, you know, I kind of wanted people to enjoy the story as much as I enjoy it. So that's what motivated me to do that. So I thought it would be interesting to write a it from his point of view so with all his you know the subjective distortions and gaps and uh, but also to put it bang into contemporary language because Hamlet um, you know because it's technically so demanding uh, you often get a fat 38 year old actor playing this boy so I thought if I use contemporary language then I can use the young actor right okay so, which, I, which I, which it's just so weird having him go on when he's thirty about his mother's sex life, and I cannot. It's, it's hard to. You kind of by that stage, good luck to you. You know what I mean. Whereas a nineteen-year-old boy, uh, you, particularly if he's attached to his father, uh, having her shag her uncle, his his uncle, is I can I can understand how that's a thing. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You see the way into that. So, what for a man as meticulous as you, we've learnt about that what happens between having this idea and then start sitting down to actually write the first word would you just start uh no i don't no not now uh i don't think i've ever really done i just write millions of ideas down it's the same thing i do when i'm rewriting Five, brilliant. and at some stage i gradually form the ideas into a story outline of some sort right but the story outline that i write first that n- that's never survived ever. Really, it no. always becomes something completely different. Yeah, that's yeah. really exciting. So, yeah, even though there's all these notes and all this structure, it's still it's just about their steps of development. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and then keeping moving forwards. Fascinating. Just sort of a slight sort of jump, really. That idea. Well, the idea. So, theatre. Let's say that we're in some sort of a totalitarian state, and you're in court, and someone says to you, justify justify theatre or storytelling 
or playwriting? What if, what, if, I w- if I was being a kind of idealist and dead honest to this court. Yes, please, <laughs> right. please. Yeah, yeah, you, you're going to die because of it. You've committed right, So I that. might as well tell them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, don't, don't try and do something clever to get yourself through the day. Yeah, 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 definitely not. Well, um, I think uh, uh, this is hard to talk about without getting wanky. That's allowed. I think... I think that word is the allowed. word is allowed but the word is allowed the word is allowed but the, what you're going to do is allowed uh, all right. we uh, want that thing <laughs> people that love theatre are listening to this you're allowed to be wanky I you're think, a playwright I think uh, I, th- I think what, it's a di- difference between drama and theatre right yeah which has been underlined in the last 20 years as more and more people are using theatre for non-dramatic purposes which I which I don't think is either good or bad. If TV can make documentaries, why can't theatre? So I don't have any problem with that. Uh, but I can't answer about the other stuff easily. What I think is about drama, using drama rather than as a genre word, as a broad word for including comedy and tragedy and thrillers and all the rest yeah. of it. Uh, <clears throat> I think uh, my way of putting this is uh, what I call a dramatic problem. And dramatic problem is problem with no right answer. Right. And I think people have their preoccupations. They might be political. Uh, you know, they might have all these issues in their life. Uh, and the, not all of those are dramatic. The ones that are dramatic are the ones that drive them mad because there's no answer. So, you know, the love story is the obvious one. Can't live with you, can't live without you. Um, but usually it's focused on a dilemma and whichever route, suppose there's two answers, there's two solutions, neither of those routes are satisfactory. And and also the other thing about the climax or the kind of thing that the protagonist eventually has to do is they put it off and put it off and put it off because they know there's no right answer. So whichever thing they do, it's a bit wrong. Right, yeah. And I think people know that. I think people experience that in a kind of generalised way in their day-to-day life. And the purpose of drama, for me, is to enact that and bring, to enact it and bring it to a head. Because a lot of the time people are experiencing something like that frustration, but in day-to-day life it's not brought to a head very often. Uh, but I think uh, everyone at some point, occasionally things are brought to a head and people get this, no matter how painful it is, this kind of rush. It's what I call emergency energy when I'm teaching actors. They get this kind of rush of excitement, even if it's horrible. It's because all our senses are on fire trying to solve this impossible problem. So the adrenaline is going around like a lunatic. And um, you're not allowed to use that word. I've just been reading Catcher in the Rye. So it's full of moron and lunatic and, you know... Um, words from the 50s um, <coughs> but uh, I, I think that that's the um, the, the I think uh, story in general and drama in particularly particular unlocks for a time or relieves or maybe even gives pleasure around something that's maddening brilliant that's a great answer. <laughs> what is it about playwriting that makes your heart sing? Sing or sink? Yeah, sing, sing. Uh, you mean doing the writing? Yeah, doing the act of it, yeah. Well, it's days going by without knowing what the time is. 
you know, when you're completely absorbed in it, uh, you know, like we've all had horrible jobs where, you know, it takes five years to get from nine to five. And uh, the thing about, uh, and I found this more as I've got older, actually, because when you start and you don't know anything, uh, then sometimes you just keep, you're hitting walls and problems you don't know how to solve. But as you get older, you have concepts and ideas and notions, oh, I could do this, I could try that. You know, there's, you have a bigger, and you have much more critical um, vocabulary. So you can challenge your own writing and uh, kind of come up with new ideas much more easily. So the total absorption thing I get all the time now, really, when I Amazing. write. And uh, so the whole banging your head against a wall thing is pretty much gone. So as soon as you start to write, because you can articulate problems really easily it's you know there's the the utter absorption is virtually daily for me amazing just quick before we finish do you have any hobbies ian i read i read that's pretty much it that's very close to work as well isn't that was interested in writers that have that do anything else that doesn't link how do you keep your mind clear? Well, I don't watch television. I read books rather than watch documentaries. Right, yeah, yeah. So you're yeah. not for research, that's your... I just, yeah, that's what I do. Yeah, that's my kick. Thank you so much. It's been a real kick to be sitting and talking to you for the last 20 minutes. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the Traverse Theatre Edinburgh. For more information, please log on to www.traverse.co.uk.